gosh, what is it good for? Well, if you ask the world, mostly everything. Because it's kind of what we do best. Actually, it's the second best thing that we do. The first best is hypocrisy, because we all claim to hate war. And then we uh, find ourselves in the midst of war at every turn. And then we say, other people are bringing us to war. But if you take out the word other, people are bringing us to war, and we're people. So maybe we're a part of this, too. Maybe so long as we're at war within ourselves, we're always going to be creating war out there. I don't know how it is in other countries, but in America, we love to now um, debate the word nationalism, whether it has racist connotations or not. Um, But we never debate the word patriotism. In fact, we worship the word patriotism. They're the same word. I mean, if you go by the dictionary, I suppose nationalism, uh, you know, they're both putting your country first, loving your country, putting your country ahead of everything else. But with nationalism, you'll do it at the expense of other people, other nations. So it's got that racist connotation that patriotism doesn't. But that's all just verbal, right? In truth... Uh, We do all sorts of atrocious things in the name of patriotism. I mean, that's the actuality, right? Behind the wordplay. So these are not different things. In fact, just even the the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, uh, the Patriots, they're a football team, right? So what is football? Why was it invented? Why did it start getting promoted on the nightly news As if you'll recall, and maybe they still do it nowadays too, I'm not sure, but uh, it's always the last segment on the news is your sports cast. And, um, you know, it's all to get you interested in war, in war tactics, strategy, and that sort of thing. Uh, It's to keep you interested in violence, and violence as a, a game, as a sport. Now, there are all sorts of Uh, perhaps biological animal reasons that we enjoy violence as sport, but that's not why we put it on the news. (laughs) Specifically, it was to uh, keep people in a war-loving frame of mind. So it's apropos that the winningest NFL team in a long time and arguably the greatest quarterback of all time is Tom Brady and the Patriots, right? And this uh this this going to war business um you know, sometimes it's just empire building, but we're that's out of fashion. We're not allowed to say that anymore, so we talk about like resources. We need resources. We need oil. We need uh water if there's ever going to be a fresh water shortage, although apparently America's sitting on top of practically all the fresh water you would ever need. But you go down the list of uh, elements, minerals, just natural resources that we need. This is what we go to war over, supposedly. I mean, you know, the reasons keep changing. But we call it survival. We say it's for survival uh, at the end of the day. But not 
the survival of the species, the survival of our sense of comfort in the world. And our comfort is linked to our physical comfort. We do love our beds. <laughs> and uh, and also our diversions are, are being entertained into a stupor. I mean, at this point in history, you know, as I say, the, the reasons are ever-changing. But the thrust of a consumer culture is to consume. And why are we consuming? We're consuming to fill a hole. And what is the hole we're filling? What is it that we need? Why are we feeling so incomplete that we need to just keep buying physical things? Or now we don't even buy physical things. We buy virtual things. Why do we keep running from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing? Even in so-called peacetime, we do this. I mean, in peacetime, with a strong economy at our best, we're still at war within ourselves. And we keep trying to cover that over by doing external activities and placing meaning and importance in them that we never question. And some of them may have importance or meaning, but how would we know if we never question it? For instance, in the last episode, I talked about the star stones in Hawaii. And uh, these are elongated stones that are standing on end, that are used for navigational purposes, that um, have as many dimensions as the word navigational implies. But they, they exist on a precipice, on a cliff. And um, after earthquakes, some of them fall down and tumble a little ways down the cliff. And um, when people happen upon them who don't know what they are, but they see the formation at the top. They just assume uh, that these belong where they are. They don't put the one and one together that they may have tumbled down the cliff. They just figure that they fell over in place, and then they stand them up. And, uh, you know, we call this cultural preservation. But it has no meaning. You didn't preserve anything because you didn't you didn't know about it. So... So, in best intentions aside, what is it that you're preserving, really, if you haven't bothered to actually learn about the star stones to know what they are? Um, what is it in your intentions that really is for the greater good when you're saying you're uh, preserving cultures? And in Hawaii... Um, uh, Hawaiians didn't really have a written language. They had pictographs etched in stone, but these were impermanent. I mean, they didn't mean for any of this stuff to be permanent. The heiaus, temples, any of the structures. They were, impermanence is a way of life on an active volcano. But we find these things and we need to preserve them. Uh, so let's just be clear about why it is that we're preserving them. There is no right or wrong about it. Um... But it's not for the Hawaiians who have come to pass. Not for them. And if we're not going to bother to learn what the original Hawaiians, even the pre-Tahitian Hawaiians, what their thinking was and why they built things and all that, then uh, we're not getting a complete picture of the how and why of Hawaiian society and Hawaiian culture. So we're not actually preserving the Hawaiian culture for even the Hawaiian people. 
for them to look back and go, oh, yeah, right, that's right, before Christians, uh, there was the Tahitian influence. Before the Tahitians, there were the original people. Uh, now, cultural preservation is all about, just, just prior to um, Christianization, well, just prior to the West coming here, um, but nevertheless is still retaining its Christian influence even. So it's not even purely even the Tahitian, the pre-Christian Tahitian knowledge and ways and customs. Um, and when I say Tahitian, of course, I'm talking about Tahitian-Hawaiian mix with Samoa and with all the other uh, island nations that were here. Um, it was a mix of people. But the ruling class um, came from the Tahitians. And prior to any of that being an issue, there were people. <laughs> there were just some original families that were here. So again, what is it that we are preserving and why? And I wonder if what we're preserving isn't our sense of quest, our sense of hero's journey in discovering newer and newer things about ancient ways, you know, and this gets into Machu Picchu, this gets into Egypt, um, ancient China, you know, go down the list of places on earth, Turkey, um, Iraq, uh, which was Samaria, you know, you, you go down the list of places that seem ancient and mysterious, and therefore mysterious, like we've got some sort of uh, amnesia about them, and we want to know. And we say that we're doing this important work of, of dusting off these artifacts that were never meant to be around this long. Uh, so again, we're not dusting them off for those people because they don't care. They're, they're dead. <laughs> And they weren't exactly preserving these things for their great, 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 great grandchildren, right? And often these things end up in museums in Europe and in America. Um, so we're not even preserving these artifacts in these other cultures for their people. For the benefit of their own culture now to look back and know thyself, uh, know where they came from. If they don't, I mean, if these are cultures that were crushed or otherwise dominated by some other society somewhere along the way. So what's it for? To collect and to look at? To marvel over? To give us a sense of wonder, that spark, that there is something beyond us? And um, it, it's, a, it's a surrogate feeling of sort of a joy, right? I mean, not everyone is going to be the discoverer and the archaeologist, right? Or the anthropologist or... So not everyone's going to be able to put their, their name on it. Um, only a few people are going to be able to do that. Not everyone's going to be able to feel the, the pride for their country for having done this, you know, to be the first American to ever do blank, to ever discover whatever, fill in the blank in Africa that, you know, leads us to believe... Uh, society first came from here, the motherland. Uh, we're, we're not, but we still retain something of that. Those of us who who get a feeling from reading about these things, from studying these things, from watching the 
documentaries get a feeling of amazement, of astonishment, of joy, of relief. I mean, all of these things rolled up into one. And we feel like we're on that journey often, you know, this journey of discovery, because your your mind is popping with all of these possibilities. Oh, I didn't realize it was like that. Oh, wow. It was really like that. Oh, they had that back then? How did they do this? That's amazing. We imagine a lot of things about these societies. They were a lot simpler, simpler times, and therefore they were more onenessy than we are. Or, uh, or we imagine that their struggles must have been awful, and thank God we have... Um, boxy houses and big screen TVs now, because otherwise we'd be bored and out in the elements and, you know, fighting off mosquitoes. Who wants that? So, let alone bears, you know? <laughs> so it feeds our sense of uh, being able to judge the world in a way that that we're evil, e- either thankful um for what we have in perhaps an arrogant way, uh, comparing their culture to ours, like, ugh, they don't have what we have. Thank God I was born in the here and now. Or the opposite, with this sense of longing of, oh, I wish I had that, I wish I were that. Um, but again, does that really reflect the culture that we are supposedly preserving and learning about? Or is it simply just a reflection of our own inner turmoil? Our own needs not being met. Our own partialness. That we've duped ourselves into believing is the whole of the human story, or the whole of what a human being can be. And um, and in that duping ourselves, we are consciously or unconsciously constantly on the search for wholeness, for that further transcending definition of a human being. We can't find it in ourselves. We we look for it in art. We look for it in songs, right? And we look for it in our ancient past. It's always about us. In fact, making everything about us is the dysfunctional, unconscious, uh, in-time version of timeless oneness. The egoic center is always emulating the very quote-unquote thing that it is covering up, which is our true nature, our whole full expression, transcending and including that self. We don't like that. We don't like that transcend and include business. We want to be the transcendent thing. We want to be the one who transcends and includes. And so, since that isn't actually the case, (laughs) and we want it to be the case, well, then we toil in unhealthiness, in our partialness. Like a skipping record with the same emotional nonsense and the same reactions uh in life because we're always reacting we're never we're never acting we're never action itself we're we're in reaction to the wholeness we don't want to face that is actually our face the problem is to understand what that means to actually live the understanding of that is self-annihilation and um 
The self would rather comprehend it, <laughs> would rather internalize it and take it in and deal with it that way. Um, but again, this is a conflict. And so we are always starting out within ourselves with conflict. And what starts out internally as conflict will always spill over into the world as conflict. And you can put as many uh, names to that as you like. We're fighting for resources. We're fighting for territory. We're fighting for our cultural identity. We're fighting, fighting, fighting. Every ad on TV for a pharmacological, you know, not cure for disease is, you know, somebody giving a testimonial about how I'm a fighter. I'm fighting cancer. My battle with breast cancer. Fighting, battle, battle, fight, fight. I'm a warrior. Because that's equated with strong. That's equated with tough. Uh, we are defense mechanisms through and through. And so it's no wonder that this language is appealing. But now we want to parse words and say, well, nationalism bad, patriotism good. Um, but we don't want to understand the spark of reaction that's behind these words. We just want to react to the words, to the definitions that we've given them on paper and not the actuality uh, that we live with and that we promote in our daily lives. I suppose the best we could say is that nationalism uh, denotes the outward expression of my people over your people. It's, you know, the inherent racism of that is obvious. We're better than you. That's racism. Patriotism, the love of country, I love this place, I love this land. You don't even know what you love. <laughs> it's ridiculous. My people are better than your people is ridiculous. The whole thing is, is silly, and this is what we spend our time living <laughs> and arguing about, right? Uh, this is what we do. <laughs> we, we have, like, uh, a handful of decades to exist. And then we don't know what happens next. We don't know. But we spend this time parsing words <laughs> and being at war. Uh, so one is the, the blatant, literal, in-your-face racism, and then the other one is, um, well, I'm not going to call loving my country racism. I just love my country. But if that means that I have to turn a blind eye to the war, the atrocities, the sweatshops, the... Uh, slavery and all of that, that that my way of living has caused to the rest of the world, uh, well, so be it. <laughs> as long as I'm unconscious of all that crap, I can just say that I love my country. At least the nationalist is honest enough to say, yeah, I don't care about those people. They're slaves. Uh, me, me, me. Right? I mean, this is obvious stuff. And it's obvious stuff in the way that, to some of you, it'll be obvious, like, now that I've pointed it out and shed some light on it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. Or, oh, duh, I guess I always sort of knew that, but I hadn't thought of it that way. But probably at this point in history, most everyone listening to this is like, yeah, duh, get on with the new revelations, we know this. Which means that you're still not looking at yourself. You still want to get on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Big epiphanies and all of that. 
Where is the spiritual stuff, Jer? Where is the undoing? Well, you've got to do the undoing. Can't be me. And at some point, if you've listened to enough things like this, to the extent that you're going, oh, yeah, I already know that, duh. And you're not fundamentally changed in any way, even though you keep telling yourself, tomorrow I'll do it, or uh, I'm going to sit with this and I'm going to get right with myself. But it never happens, and now you're bored with hearing it over and over again, the thing that you already know. Well, this is because you're at war within yourself, and it doesn't matter that you know it logically. The knowing it logically is not a thing. It's the understanding it so so deeply that it fundamentally changes you at the core. Not that you're changing you, but the understanding so deeply, precisely what the problem is, that that is the cure to the problem. This is the moment that we have a real tough time getting to. Because again, the self doesn't want the cure, which is self-annihilation. So so instead it says, I've already heard about this cure of yours, self-annihilation. I've heard it before, so what's next? That doesn't work, or I've done it, or you know, any amount of lies. Yeah, I'm not at war with, my, with myself. I mean, that's someone else. That's not me. Well, sure, it's you. Here you are listening to this. Why? It, of course it's you. It's the U2 song, man. You still haven't found what you're looking for. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this, right? So don't give me the uh, holier-than-thou stuff. Because I get that quite a bit from uh, listeners and readers. No one wants to be the human in the room. <laughs> Everyone wants to be the big transcendent light being. And, you know, obviously sometimes people listen to spirit stuff, spirit talk, um, for pointers on how to sound just like an enlightened person. Not because they actually uh, care to see what the problem is. But you can't fake it till you make it. Not with this one. So even if you say, well, I don't care about nationalism. I don't care about patriotism. That's not me. I don't like war. I'm a peaceful protester. Well, you are still at war within yourself. So guess what? You're causing war somewhere in the world, even if it's only within you. Even if you take it out on yourself. Even if you lash out at your friends and family in some way. Because they bug you, because they're an object in your way. Stop bothering me. We're always hurting someone, even if it's ourselves. I mean, it's always ourselves. But even if we go no further, we're still hurting somebody. That's not for resources. That's not for territory. Right? not for racism. So our reasons for being at war aren't really reasons. What's the real reason? If not that we're hurt and confused, and so we cause hurt and confusion. That's what you give because that's what you are, right? If you're hurt and confused, then you're giving yourself hurt and confusion. And you give the world hurt and confusion. I mean, that's circular. We give what we are. We give what we what we know. Although sometimes we can uh, 
know other things and, and mask what we are with the knowledge of how we think we should behave to please other people or to skate by in society, even though we're completely miserable. Um, but that collapses around us eventually. Either people see through that and don't tell you, or uh, you cave under the weight of your own pressure and you act out in some way. You call your own bluff, eventually. In this we call hitting bottom, right? And so you would think that once you hit bottom, uh, that would be the perfect time to get real with yourself. To really finally understand the whole of the issue. But instead, because the whole of the issue is the annihilation of self, and that's actually scarier than than anything we're talking about right now. (laughs) Scarier than, than getting caught by... Your friends for being inauthentic or calling yourself out for being inauthentic. Instead of being authentic, we just we run to the next inauthentic thing. But for a time, it feels, it feels good, and therefore we are fine calling that authentic. We have masks that are nice substitutes for the authentic. But they're masks nonetheless, and eventually they crumble and... And then we need to run to another one, like a, like a hermit crab changing shells. You want to talk about a war for territory? Just look inside. Look at the conflict and the struggle to even be the same person every day. <laughs> you know, every time you wake up. To just, you know, you, of course, everyone wants to wake up and be the best them they can be. It'd be feel good. But what a struggle it is, right, to do that. Sometimes you just even have a dream that you don't remember, but you just know that you had a dream because um, it was terrible and it and it colors your day. Sometimes you're just in a mood. You're just in a funk. The brain chemistry is working differently, whatever it is. Sometimes you can't help but bring that past hurt from the day before with you into the next day. You wake up and you start where you left off, no matter how hard you try. And then sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you have the good dream that (laughs) puts a little spring in your step, or you somehow resolve the issue, or it feels resolved, or it just goes away. And then you wonder, geez, why did I care about that so much in the first place? It's gone now. So why was it ever important then? But this is another pendulum that we swing on back and forth. Mood swings, I calls them. (laughs) Uh... But we're not stabilized. And so what happens? Well, gee, then we go, and um, if it's really bad, these mood swings, then we get drugs for it. We'll do anything to to stabilize, to equalize ourselves. But, of course, this is a false answer, and you know that the second that you go off the drug and you're right back to where you were. You haven't dealt with the issue. You've dealt with issues. You've gone to a psychologist, maybe, and you've um, you've talked it out, and you've dealt with your mom and your dad and uh, your crappy job and your dog pooping on your shoe or whatever it is. Your kids suck, and you're finally saying it to yourself because <laughs> who wants to admit that, right? But finally, you admitted it. I don't really like my kids all the time. You know, whatever the problem is, I'm just using. I don't have kids, by the way, so don't worry. They're they're safe. <laughs> Um, the point is there are these surface issues, our psychological issues 
that look like the whole of the problem. They look like the entirety of our issues. And if we could just deal with those, we'll be fine. And after we've dealt with them, we're still not fine. So we think it must be some sort of brain chemistry issue. And maybe we get a a pharmacological substance and, and that doesn't help. The antidepressants don't work. They just kind of make us loopy or they work. But then when I go off them, uh, I'm bad again. I'm, I'm moody again. I'm whatever. So if it's not the brain chemistry, I mean, if, if that can't be completely healed and the psychological issues seem to be healed, but there's still something wrong here. Well, instead of assuming that it's still the brain chemistry, as so many of us do that, well, then I guess I just need to be on these drugs forever. Um, because they can't just permanently change the brain patterns the way I work, can they? What if, uh, what if we just uh, sat with ourselves? Instead of going out and searching for answers and clawing and scraping at answers and being at war with ourselves, because once you find out that these answers aren't answers, you get desperate. And it's like a junkie. You get desperate and you start looking under every rock for, for an answer. Uh, where's that fix? Where's that money? I need that fix. Um, what if we just uh, said, wait a minute, what am I, what am I doing wrong? What is it that I'm always doing? Oh, doing itself. Because what's the one thing that I, I haven't done? I haven't done nothing. I haven't tried just sitting with myself. I mean, I've tried meditation and I've tried yoga. I've tried breathing exercises. I've tried dream interpretation. I've tried all sorts of just sitting with myself and pondering me. But have I ever just been? What happens to this cluttered racing mind and these mood swings? What happens to the internal chatter and the conflict in totally being? Can they exist in totally being, or are they the product of doing? And if that doing is running from being, then whoa, maybe I just need to be. Not in the Beatles-y sense of let it be, which is you allowing something so you're still there, but simply being so deeply that you don't exist anymore. How does one greet the world then? With war? With peace? These questions exist for the doer who's deciding what to do next. But for one who is being, there are no questions of war and peace. There is only what is. And that sense of what isness is its own consciousness. And that consciousness is never at war and never struggling to make peace, which is war. There's simply no question. And that consciousness is you when all the masks crumble.